0: Hi, I'm Juliette Root, and welcome to The Juliette Root Show. I'm a board-certified nutritionist, integrative health coach, and master personal trainer. Join me as I interview thought leaders, educators, and health practitioners. Together, we will dive deep into subjects like psychology, science, spirituality, and human optimization. Please subscribe to The Juliette Root Show, and don't forget to rate and review the podcast. To connect with me on a deeper level, follow my Instagram at Juliet underscore root, and visit my website, Julietroot.com. Remember, information isn't transformation. So get out there and start taking action. Hello, and welcome to the Juliet Root Show. I'm your host, Juliet Root, and today my guest is Mary Firestone. Mary experienced a riveting yet traumatic event when she was pregnant, trapped on the counter of her bathroom, and separated from her son and husband while her house is coming apart in a mudslide. Now, Mary is on a personal mission to let others know they are not alone, and there is a light on the other side of the darkness of PTSD. Mary has just released her first book, Trusting the Dawn, How to Choose Freedom and Joy After Trauma. And Dr. Joe Dispenza himself said, This book is medicine for anyone who wants to free their mind, body, and soul from the past. Welcome, Mary, to the Juliet Root Show.
1: Thank you, Juliet. So nice to be here with you.
0: First, I have to ask, how did you get Joe Dispenza (laughs) to connect with your work? And that it's, you know, I I think so highly of him and the work that he's doing. And so that's incredible that he is saying that about your book and the work that you're doing.
1: Yeah, he is incredible. And well, I discovered his books a couple of years ago. And then at the beginning of the pandemic, decided to like do the online, you know, courses, his online courses. And my life completely changed mm-hmm. because of doing the work. I'd always meditated, but not in his style. So doing doing Joe Dispenza meditations changed my life. And, and then when I was working on the book, he's actually a local Santa Barbarian. And, you know, he's always on the road doing his seminars for thousands of people. But he was, you know, we were all on lockdown. So I was connected through a friend, my friend Kelly Goris, who has an amazing documentary called Heal. And she connected us and he was available. So he came over to my living room and we had a great interview. And then kind of the rest is history. We did a few. My sister and I produced um, two events or three events with him. And we just kind of, you know, he became a bit of a mentor and a friend. So that's how. I love COVID. it. right?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's COVID, right time, right place. Yeah. And meant to happen, especially yeah. with the work that you're doing. And what you're talking about is what he supports people with so much, which is the two books for anyone who is interested in maybe getting started with anything Joe Dispenza does. One of them is You Are the Placebo. And then there's another one called Breaking... The habit of being yourself and there's other books as well. And he runs wonderful seminars and you can YouTube his meditations if you want to try any of them. But it really is about going beyond who we think we are and what we're capable of and being able to transport ourselves into something greater and something more than we ever thought that we could, which is really what you've been doing since you experienced this life changing <laughs> mm-hmm. Crazy, crazy event. And for the listeners who don't know, I know I I alluded to it a little bit in the intro, but can you share more about what happened?
1: Yeah. Um, so we had moved up from Los Angeles to Montecito and we'd found, you know, this idyllic, perfect 1890s farmhouse. Um, it was Really close by to Oprah's house. (laughs) It was in the perfect public school district. It was ideal. So we had to do a little bit of work to the home. And while we were working on it, the Thomas fire broke out, which ravaged, I think it was maybe now it's been surpassed, but the largest wildfire in California at the time. Um, So we'd been evacuated for about a month and we'd returned in early January. And I think it was just our fourth night sleeping in the house and they said there was the possibility of a debris flow. And we were not in the evacuation zone that night. And a debris flow for me, I grew up in Washington, D.C. I don't know. It just didn't sound, I I couldn't even fathom what that would mean. So, um, you know, we went to bed that night. I remember I was reading a book on karma that night for a spiritual book club that I was in with my sister and some friends. And for no reason that I'm aware of, I woke up at four o'clock in the morning and we hadn't put curtains up in the room yet because we just moved in and there was a huge gas explosion up the hill. So the sky was this like eerie, beautiful orange color. And thanks to that gas explosion and the light, I saw like literally the mountain, like a tsunami of mud. Coming at a record speed right towards our house, and I screamed to my husband, "Oh my god, it's the mudslide! Go get Ever!" Because our son, who's four at the time, his bedroom was upstairs, and by the time Napper had run to go get him, I couldn't even follow him because the mud was mud, glass, branches, boulders was up to my waist, um, and I, I couldn't go that way. So I had to run. The other way, which was towards my bathroom, and from my bathroom window, I watched my guest house get hurtled down the hill at 20 miles an hour, where my mother was supposed to be sleeping that night, and my two-story house, living room bedrooms ripped off, twisted around backwards, getting washed away in a river of mud, and my son's bedroom was the room, like looking back at me, and I thought he was in it. Um, It was deafening. So I couldn't hear anything and I was trapped for five hours on my bathroom counter. The mud stopped literally an inch below. So, um, an inch below
0: where the counter. Um,
1: Wow. So the countertop was my refuge for five hours and, um, and then it got dark. So that's sort of like trusting the dawn, the title, I was sitting in the dark praying. I, you know, I was, Seeing things, I felt a presence with me, a loving presence, having glimpses of beyond what is beyond this three dimensional world is the only way I know how to describe it. And um, doing a lot of praying and then like swinging my pregnant self over the mud to the windowsill to scream for help. Um, so,
0: now, did you have any? Visuals of outside during this time, or were you said it got dark? So you woke up at four in the morning and it was daylight as you were still in there. It was starting to get light out, but you were in the darkness. Was there any light at all to see outside during this?
1: So it stayed light thanks to the gas explosion for, I don't know, maybe like an hour. So that's how I could see my house getting ripped away, washed away. Other houses, cars, just getting. I mean, it was crazy. It was literally, I thought, the apocalypse. And um, and then it got dark because the gas, the the light went out, and then it was darkness um, for a couple hours. And then dawn broke, and I could see assess the damage. It was just so eerie, Juliet. It, it literally felt like the apocalypse. There was like not a living thing in sight. Like my neighbors' houses. Most of my neighbors, um, a lot of them died that night. So I was looking at houses completely destroyed. There was not a bird. There was not an insect. It was complete desolation, um, for many hours. And then the helicopters came with the fire department and were airlifting people off of their roofs, but, um, they didn't see me. And finally, this civilian, this man, <clears throat> excuse me, this man named Orion Womack came like charging through the mud and waiters like we have to get you out of here. Um, And he he was just like a good Samaritan. His dad had died in the La Conchita mudslide and he figured out how to get me out without putting me in the mud because there was live electrical wires. There was sewage, glass. Um, So he got surfboards out of the garage that had been exploded open, put them on top of the mud and kind of (laughs) walked me out and then put me on the back of a firefighter who walked me up to the top of the hill and to my um, husband and son who had been rescued just a little bit before me. And my daughter has his name. So I was pregnant with India at the time and her name is India Orion. Wow, beautiful.
0: And your husband and son- How did your husband get your son? Because I know you said he went to go upstairs to the bedroom. So what happened in that time while you were in the bathroom?
1: Luckily, ever, my son, I guess he'd woken up because it was really loud. Um, And he was standing at the top of the stairs. And Napper said he had to like hurdle over the banister because boulders crushed the door in. Um, and he got to him at the top of the stairs and took him into the upstairs bathroom. So good thing to know, a bathroom is the safest place to be, apparently, in a natural disaster. So they were in the upstairs bathroom um safe um, for that time. I but I couldn't hear them because it was so loud. Mm-hmm. So I heard them maybe, I don't know, an hour, two hours into, into it. Okay. Which, yeah, how important. long,
0: you know, does a mudslide go on for? How long was the, was the, it actually coming down and going towards this area?
1: I, I mean, I don't really know, but you know, time was sort of suspended. It felt so fast and interminable all at once. Um, I would say maybe it came down I, I, and I'm probably totally wrong. I'm sure they have like people that recorded it. It felt like, an hour, but maybe that's impossible. I don't
0: know. Yeah. Yeah. And I I know what you're saying about time sort of standing still. And at, at the same time, it seems like it is just going on and on and on when we're in these panic situations. So you're in the bathroom for five hours and you mentioned this wave of peace and love coming over you. Can you talk a little bit more about what you experienced when you were in there, and what came over you? What were you thinking and feeling and experiencing during this time?
1: I've always been a spiritual person. I was raised. I went to National Cathedral School for Girls. I went to this Christian camp in the south. I like. I was raised Episcopalian, and then by the time I was in my twenties, I would say I was more definitely spiritual rather than religious, um, like a specific religion the more I learned about other religions and, you know, I'm like, "Eh." anyway, that's another conversation, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. so, I've always been a spiritual person and believed in God and, you know, higher powers and angels and all of it. But that night I, in the bathroom in the dark, I felt, um, like a lot, like, I don't, I don't know how to, like, it was, if it was an angel or what, but like there was a presence with me and I felt really divinely protected And when I go through all of the what ifs that wound up with me being alive and my family being alive, it's so many, like if one of those dozens of things had gone differently, it probably would have been a different outcome. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I really felt that. And I felt like, I mean, I had also waves in the bathroom of extreme panic and being sure that my death was imminent and, um, you know, and wondering what my karma was since I'd been reading that book, if this is where I wound up. Um, so it was a full range. And I also, you know, my background, my sister and I have been running these retreats for women for like a decade now. So I had this thought of like, oh my gosh, everything I've ever been doing in my whole life has been preparing me for this moment to survive it and to get through it. So I had a little bottle of essential oils on the counter and I was like, like breathing and, you know, trying to meditate and just stay calm.
0: Yeah. I think this is something that I don't know if I, I doubt I'm the only one who has thought about this, but if there is that life or death kind of moment that happens, how would you respond? Right. One can only speculate in how they would actually react. One, of, I think one of the fears is that, we would react in panic and that Mm. one might, you know, be in a state of fear when they are about to potentially pass away. Even Mm. if this is, you know, you're on your deathbed and you've lived a really long, long life. This is something I've thought about, you know, the last thing that I would want to feel is fear and to be scared of dying. And I would want to feel a sense of more peace and love and, wanting to be okay with letting go in that moment. And for you it's a little different because this wasn't like okay you were, you know, had a terminal illness or anything and you were you were gearing up for something like that to happen. This was so quick and you didn't know if this was going to happen or not, but those thoughts still were going through your mind. So it sounds like you had just like a whole roller coaster of different emotions and experiences.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah. And then I, I think it kind of kept going because I would be like, okay, I'm going to be okay. going to get out of here. I'm going to get out of it. But then, then there was thoughts like, oh my God, but the whole world's gone. So mm-hmm. then what, you know, mm-hmm. like has the entire, has everyone I know been like wiped out? Um, then what? And then that's do I- so
0: human of us, right. To have almost every scenario play out in our head. About Mm -hmm. anything, really, (laughs) we can do this about any outcome. No, and so it's it demonstrates that how we do that as humans, how we can create these different stories, and you know have these. You're having all of these daydreams, like what if this happened, or what if this happened, or what if that happened, and then it's all these ways of sort of coping in the moment Mm -hmm. and staying strong, and and trying to just stay alive and stay present.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and I think come from that place because there was, you know, when it was in the peak of it, like, oh my gosh, like I didn't know like is the how all the entire house gonna give? Am I gonna have to jump out in the pouring rain and like, you know, like that Naomi Watts tsunami movie? Like so that I was like contemplating that for a little bit. Like, should I try to jump onto my garage roof and like the pouring freezing cold rain really glad I didn't do that but you know you're like trying to assess as quickly as possible what the safest thing is
0: and once you were reunited with your family what was that like
1: that was amazing first of all hearing them was you know like like the greatest relief of my life like knowing that they were alive And then when we physically were reunited, um, yeah, it was incredible. And then also the reality of like, oh, my God, like what just happened? It's almost like I didn't cry, I don't think, when I was trapped. But then when you're like a step out of it, it was like I couldn't stop crying. And my little boy kept saying, where are we going to go? What happened? What happened? You know, and like repeating the whole story and um, yeah, we had to be evacuated out of Montecito in those, you know, national guard tanks because you couldn't drive down the roads because it was complete destruction. So it was intense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Where did you guys go after that? Cause your new home.
1: (laughs) Completely destroyed, yeah. and my sister had actually lived like three tenths of a mile away in Montecito, and her house was fine. But Montecito, in general, like the sewage, the water, the power, so that everyone had to evacuate. um We actually went. My cousin Andrew was amazing. He like talked his way through the the police lines and came and rescued us um, from the triage center and brought us back to his house. So we were there for about. again time I'm like was it a week was it two weeks um we were there and then we bounced around I think like eight times in four months and I was pregnant so I was just like oh praying to land somewhere where we could stay by the time India came and we literally moved into the house that I'm still in now May 1st and she came May 25th so it was like
0: (laughs) Yeah. So you were newly pregnant at the time that this happened, it sounds like.
1: I was like four and a half months pregnant. Wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. You know, think, I was thinking too, thank goodness I wasn't like eight months and trying to like maneuver my <laughs> belly around. Yeah. So in the
0: aftermath of all of this, you know, you, a lot of your book is about overcoming trauma and, the, and how to find the light at the end of the tunnel of having a post-traumatic experience or post-traumatic stress disorder. What was that like for you having that post traumatic stress post the event?
1: Um, I have, I just want to say, I have my clinical degree and my master's in clinical psych. So I knew very much intellectually what was happening to me on the one hand. You know, I had nightmares, I had extreme anxiety, I was fearful of everything. Um, And yet, even with that, with my background, my first panic attack, I was like, wait, did I eat something? Am I having heat stroke? I didn't even connect it until I had the second one. And then I was like, well, okay, okay. I'm having panic attacks. So I was experiencing symptoms of PTSD. And yet at the same time, there were so many wonderful things happening in that really raw state, I felt like my ability to connect with other people, my ability to connect with like, whatever you want to call it, God, the divine was, it's almost like the veil got ripped out. And like, normally, I think most of us go around myself included, thinking about the minutia and keeping ourselves with what am I going to eat the groceries? And what am I going to do for dinner? And this that. And it's almost like, whoop, that part of my brain was offline. So the ability to kind of connect, go deeper, maybe exist more in that, uh, almost like a theta state more that was happening a lot more of the time. Um, and through different healing work I was doing, I was just experiencing this whole new dimension of life. So I found myself getting really frustrated and angry, like literally strangers would be like, Oh, you're gonna have PTSD for the rest of your life. This is gonna, you're gonna be haunted for years, all this stuff. And I, I found that like really infuriating. And um about a year after the event, the idea for this book came to me because it's like so many people that I know too that have been through traumatic events, somehow that traumatic event has sort of catapulted them into this whole other dimension or um, level of connectedness with themselves with other people with the world so that's why I wanted to to go deeper into this to do research to interview all different kinds of trauma survivors because not most of us probably won't go through a, hopefully a natural disaster but um, I wanted people to be able to find themselves and then also offer all different healing modalities from like the traditional, to shamanism, to ketamine therapy, to flower essences, everything so that people could find what works for them.
0: And you had quite a lot of experience with different modalities already, having run those retreats for so many years. I did. Yeah. Was there anything in particular that you went to draw on for yourself? Like, okay, I want to work on, you know, this trauma. I'm going to start here. (laughs) Or did you know where to start?
1: Not really. Again, I was in such a like raw shell-shocked state at the beginning that um, a a friend and who also was a therapist was like, I think you could really benefit from EMDR, which is the eye movement um, desensitization reprocessing therapy. That's a tongue twister. It is, yes. (laughs) Um, So, you know, and again, I had studied it, but I had never experienced it. And it really, the first time I did it, you know, you're holding these alternating buzzers because it's the bilateral, it's stimulating your both sides of the brain. And the idea is that it kind of um, breaks the traumatic loop in your brain and rewires. So, you know, I, and while it was happening, like there's no way this is going to work, but that night for the first time I didn't have a nightmare. So and I kept I kept doing it. So I had a lot of sessions with that. And then when things came up again, I went back. So EMDR was one of the first things that really helped me. Another of the first things that I tried, there was an amazing woman in town offering cranial sacral work, which was so I could just lie there and not have to talk and feel safe and again she's like cradling your your head and the way she describes it and I go into it in the book is kind of allowing like different parts again of the brain to release and to quiet and then new pathways to form so those two were helpful and i think sort of started pivoting pivoting me out of that extreme darkness
0: yeah And it's, you know, as a, someone who has their masters in psychology, you knew that, you know, the nervous system has, has this particular response to create safety in our bodies. And so there's this threat that seems like it's this persistent threat that is happening so that you stay hypervigilant just in case, right? Something like that were to happen again. So this is really natural intelligence that our system has when we have any post-traumatic stress. I, I remember after my dad died, just replaying that image in my mind because I found him, you know, when he had a heart attack and it was like, you know, the replaying of it is just the h- hardest part in the beginning. And then not being able, you know, I'm speaking for myself, but it sounds like you had similar experience of not being able to sleep because you don't feel safe Something just feels like you are under threat, you are under attack in your system. Mm -hmm. And then if that's not addressed, it can definitely calm over time with with time itself, but Mm -hmm. it still lives in the body. It goes somewhere. So I know a lot for a lot of people years later, it's still there. It's not as loud anymore, Mm -hmm. but it's still quietly there. And then, you know, through other experiences, if it's not attended to, if it's not integrated, then that's where future issues can, can come up. Can you speak a little bit about that and writing this book about trauma in general for people?
1: Yeah, I feel like you said a lot of things now. <laughs> so the traumatic loop that is and our bodies, it is, I mean, our, our, they're ingeniously designed to put us into that fight or flight to keep us safe. The issue, and, you know, the research shows that we stay after a traumatic event, you can stay in that heightened state for about 30 days, but staying in that elevated state is not healthy because it's, you know, our cortisol levels, our stress is through the roof or to what you, you know, you, you said hypervigilant. So everything is, is a threat, which isn't, isn't healthy. So how do we transition out of it and break the loop? And um, I think, you know, what you shared about replaying the scene of finding your dad, a lot of us too, I think, you know, I had an incident getting molested at the age of seven by a 70 year old man. And that has been, I've done a lot of work. And yet, you know, that loop was still going. So I think the breaking the loop which at the EMDR really helped me do. And then even, so that was like mudslide trauma, but then I underwent ketamine therapy, which for the mudslide, but the first image that came to me was that seven-year-old Mary in that instance. So, and in that therapy, I feel like that loop got broken. Mm-hmm. And so I think I, I like, like the idea of breaking the loop Also animals, when they get chased in the wild by the lion, like a gazelle will, when it gets away from the lion, it will shake its body and releases the cortisol from the body. We don't do that as humans. So I have a whole part about movement therapies in the book too. And this idea of like, you know, releasing the cortisol, shaking the body. Um, Okay. And then you asked me about integration too, I think. Yeah. No, well, I wanted to speak to integration. Yeah.
0: yeah. I think that that's what a lot of, well, I'm going to interrupt quickly because I think that a lot of people get freaked out and I've talked about this on the show a lot and I'm going to keep addressing it because it keeps coming up with my clients and people I speak to that are nervous about doing deeper healing work that does address trauma because they are worried about something from the past being unearthed, like that seven-year-old Mary that you spoke about. And that for some people seems like a threat in itself. So, so much greater than just staying where they are right now. Yes. Maybe they have anxieties and depression and, but they're coping and dealing with it, but they're like, I don't want to poke the bear. So what are your thoughts on that for people who are nervous? My
1: thoughts on that, which I love, like one of a healer that I worked with a long time ago, she was like, okay. I mean, we can, do, we don't need to do this. We can just stop here and then it'll just leak itself out in really maladaptive ways for the rest of your life. I'm like, You know, so I, I get it. Like they're really hard things and the seven-year-old Mary and the 13-year-old Mary who that had, you know, instances of sexual abuse, like, but you can't leave them back. They're going to come out. So it's, I think it'd be, and it was not scary. I think that's what I would say to people that it's scarier to keep those things down in there, mutating, turning into illness in the body, um, affecting our relationships, affecting our relationship with self than it is to just you know, dive in and tend to those to those hurt places and integrate,
0: yeah. So how do we integrate once we have? We've tended to those places. How
1: does the integration
0: process work?
1: I also, wait, do you want me to shut that window? Do you hear that little
0: chirpy bird? Is he bothering you? No, oh, it's not bothering me. For anyone who hears the bird, it's a beautiful chirping bird. <laughs> 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 I, I like birds. it. I love nature sounds. We'll let that live.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's cheering us on. Um, I So integrations. Basically, all these different healers that I interviewed, from like the very traditional PhDs in psych to the shaman to you know, everyone in between, integration seems to be the goal of any kind of trauma therapy. Which I this is, I wanted to say, like, healing is ongoing, so it's because some people have been like, Wait, how can you just say heal, check, you're done? No, I am not saying that, I'm saying that. We get to a place where in the healing work, the story of being molested at seven, of finding your dad, of surviving a mudslide, of whatever anyone's trauma is, it becomes part of our story, but not the story. So, and also there's a part in the book where I talk a lot about rewriting your story. I interviewed this incredible woman, Dr. Edith Eager who has two books, The Choice and The Gift. She's a Holocaust survivor and she has had a thriving clinical practice in La Jolla for decades now. But um, she talks a lot about our language and the idea that in life, we're all gonna be victimized. That's part of the human experience. What we have a choice about is whether or not we stay in victimhood or we move past it. And that is, You know, talking about rewriting the story, like subtle shifts for me that have helped and how I've helped integrate, like the mudslide, for example, is instead of my story being like, I almost died, everyone I love almost died, you know, I could have lost the baby, I got, you know, whatever, shifting I almost died into I woke up in time, I used my voice, I woke people up, everyone was safe, I survived. Just this subtle shift in I almost died to I survived, it's more empowering. Um, so beginning to think about, about how what your story is, how we're telling it to ourselves and other people, how much we're telling it, how much does it define it? I think starting to think about things like that can help us begin to integrate a traumatic experience into the fabric of our life experience.
0: Yeah. I think this idea of language is so key in how we talk to ourselves about a situation and our story, not even, and, and what we share with other people and what you're talking about victim versus, you know, hero or whatever mindset you're in. I think we have to ask ourselves sometimes really hard questions like, why am I... Sharing my story in this way, Why am I talking to myself in this way? Because there is something that we get from it. And oftentimes, like you said, there's this maladaptive behavior that occurs. So that could be the way that you get somebody to show pity and to show love towards you and to and that that's something that is needed. So it's not that it's a negative thing per se. To have that kind of relationship to your story, but I think it's important that we look at it and go, "What is it actually trying to do here? Is there a way that I can be, uh, that I can change the relationship with myself in how mm-hmm. I share the story?" And you know, that's still an ongoing thing for me when I find myself, you know, especially in different relationships. You know, we have these different personas with different people in our life, <laughs> and yeah. especially family. And I'll Uh notice, you know, sharing a story in a way that is more dramatic. And then I'm like, oh, interesting. That part of me is coming out that's trying to get attention and wants to dramatize this situation so that I'm getting more love and acceptance in this moment. Versus if I had told that story to a coworker, it would have been a completely different way I would have shared that story.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that's the first step is recognizing like paying attention to oh I just did that again and oh did I just do that it's like am I acting out of faith or out of fear like am I and even because I I mean I think we all do that right okay I told that story because I'm fearful if I didn't tell it that way then I wouldn't get the love and the attention I want But maybe is there a better way that better for me that I can go about getting the love and attention?
0: Yeah. And I think it really, speaking for myself, comes down to just having more regard for myself, being able to give myself that kind of assurance, love, respect, and -hmm. not seeking it outside of myself. And so if I feel secure within myself, then I don't have to rely on these maladaptive behaviors and stories that I share, or, you know, that neediness of wanting to be seen by others. Mm-hmm. And it's, I'm not going to say this is easy because sometimes I i actually can see it, you know, like in the moment happening and then going, you know what, I'm actually going to choose to play out the old scenario. Nope, not going to override this program right now. It's all good.
1: <laughs> yeah, it feels too good. To yeah, feel right there's now. definitely <laughs> something
0: like kind of like you're like feeding into it. Um, I was just listening to uh, Gabor Mate Mm -hmm. and who's like definitely one of the foremost leading experts in trauma. And, you know, I just love him so much. He just came out with a new book. Can't remember the name, but his old book is called The Hungry Ghost. Talks a lot about the connection between trauma and addiction. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he was sharing is how so many people who have gone through very traumatic experiences, which is what you're speaking to after you were interviewing that woman, is how we can look on the other side of it and go, wow, that was my greatest teacher. Wow, I'm so grateful that that happened to me. Look at you know how it propelled me into this new way of being, new way of thinking, new way of doing. And uh, this isn't to say like, if you're going through something right now to be like, oh, it's your greatest teacher, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> in the moment, it's not something I would never want to put that on somebody where, you know, but it is really interesting. And I'm curious just with you talking to other people too, and your own experience, have you seen that be a common thread with people who've experienced these, you know, really large traumas that they see it as a teacher for them and that it might have been one of the greatest things that ever happened to them?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, uh, and in the book, um, you know, I interviewed so many people that, that, that has been the case, be it like the loss of a child or a terminal illness, um, You know, it's extreme sexual abuse, like how these and obviously I just want to clarify, like when I say that the trauma is a gift or a teacher, it's like, no, the actual, of course, the trauma is not the gift, That it's a tragedy. And it is. um, These are things that nobody should endure. Um, That's not the gift. The gift is what comes after. I think what you're saying with through healing and through time too. It's like, we're not going to speed up the time afterwards, like feel the feelings you know, you have to go into the dark to come back to the light. Um, but I think the gift and the teaching lies in any time the veil between this life and the next, anytime our mortality is called into question, For me, I think that has become more and more the definition of trauma. Um, Anytime we're reminded of our own mortality and whether our own or witnessing someone else's or even um, our,
0: we could even say our fragility, right? Yes. Yeah. Our fragility
1: and we forget because like the only sure thing we know about being is alive is that we're going to die. Like, you know, but, and yet in our culture, it's, so terrifying and we work so hard against it we don't think about it we don't talk about it and again that's a whole other conversation but um i think that this the teaching is and the gift is in recognizing our fragility and embracing it and that means not putting off doing things having conversations so next when i have a partner when i have more money when i have this it's like recognizing that now is all we have is the present moment. And so who do we want to be with? How do we want to spend our time? How do we want to show up for ourselves and in the world? Um, that to me is the gift and the teaching and the teacher. A lot of cultures kept saying to me, like I had a Jungian psychologist and I had a shaman and a healer say, Oh, you've been initiated. A traumatic event. What initiated to what? And I think it is that initiation to this recognition that life is fragile, and so to live more from that place mm-hmm. of the preciousness.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm going to pause here because I just realized I have to plug in this computer. So be right back. Okay. <laughs> Most likely,
1: edit this, or maybe not. We'll see. Let me just plug it. Okay.
0: Oh, right. Yes. This happened to me on a solo podcast that I was doing a couple of weeks ago. I'm like on a roll and then computer died. Oh, no. <laughs> Time for a new battery. Um, yeah. When you said initiation, that just, I felt that in my heart it made me want to cry a little bit. Mm-hmm. Just really felt oh, like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really hit home because I've had quite a few initiations, which, you know, looking back on, I wouldn't take any of it back because I have a different relationship to myself and my existence with reality Mm -hmm. than before that happened, which I think is what you're alluding to. Is there in, in understanding our fragility and understanding that we cannot control that life is going to always be this up and up or that there's going to just be, you know, happiness all around Uh, in knowing that we can really be more conscious of our decisions and how we choose to look at things and how we choose to be grateful for what's around us. And I ask myself a lot, like, is this necessary? You know, this, oftentimes we, we put stress on ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I've had a very different relationship with that because of different experiences I've had to be able to almost look like an observer Mm -hmm. and be able to say, is that really worth the energy expenditure? You know, if you're, you have these, we don't know how many years you're going to have on this gorgeous, beautiful planet. And so maybe your energy could be siphoned elsewhere versus stressing yourself out about this really like small thing or, you know, thinking that you have to do something a certain way. Is that really true? A lot of asking myself, is that really true?
1: Ooh, that's good. I like that.
0: Yeah. And that's comes a lot from um, uh, Byron Katie. She's a really amazing coach and she has a whole worksheet that I do a lot that I've done a lot. And it really just makes you look at yourself in this way of of a deeper understanding of how much we are we have been programmed to care about certain things that are really meaningless. I mean, we create the meaning in our lives. Mm-hmm. And so what kind of meaning do we actually want to to make out of things, which is sort of like as human beings, that is such an innate thing, like the meaning making, which I think is where people sometimes get a little bit um, critical of the meaning making that happens after trauma. It's like, well, Mm -hmm. of course you're going to make it mean something positive. That's what humans do. Okay, great. (laughs) That's what Mm -hmm. we do. That means that we are these strong, resilient beings. We, you Mm -hmm. know, that can get through things that it doesn't Mm -hmm. have to define you, that you can be strong after something like that. It doesn't have to take your entire life down. I think that's a good thing that we can make positive meaning out of things.
1: Absolutely. And the resilience. And I think you know what you're doing with this show. And you know, for me, the writing of this book, it's we're not just making meaning for ourselves, we're also wanting to share and connect and uplift other people. Cause I'm I mean, I, I know sounds like you too. You know how hard it can be, and it can feel very isolating and like we're the only ones that this has happened to, and it's never gonna get better. And I think that there, there is some expert whose name is escaping me who they developed like another step in healing from grief. And it is, it's the making meaning and then like kind of this idea of like paying it forward, like, you know, mm-hmm. reaching out a hand, sharing, you know, being um, a guide or a helper on the path to others.
0: Yeah, I know in, you know, like uh, the 12-step program, being of service is a really big piece of that. And I think that is sort of like one of the last steps after integration is then being of service to other people. And that is really what, what brings you more fulfillment and joy is when you can be of service in Absolutely. whether it's to people or it's to, you know, the planet, helping the environment. But just knowing that you are doing something that isn't just about yourself we could have a whole episode about our culture (laughs) and how you know we have very very we're very self-involved and that's something that is put on us it's not I mean yes there's like that kind of innate selfishness of wanting to you know be stay alive and keep yourself safe and all of that but Mm -hmm. there's the interconnection of all things and of people that we have seemed to have really lost and it's very much like a socialized thing that I feel like there are a lot of people who are kind of like, there's a revolution happening now that I see of people wanting to dismantle that and have, and have it us come back together because we need Mm -hmm. to be together now as like humans more than ever before. If we're going to, I don't want to sound doom and gloom, but like keep things, you know, moving and grooving on this planet. We need to be, you know, coming together.
1: It's true, especially I think after like, you know, the whole trauma of COVID um, and, you know, that like such a multi-tiered trauma and one of the traumas that I think we all experienced was that trauma of isolation and not being able to connect. So, um, yeah, I, I, I too, I see like communities are shifting some of them and people are, you know, everyone's kind of behaving differently, but I love this idea of like, let's come together now. I'm like, because it was taken away or almost really taken away. And how can we show up more for each other?
0: Yeah. I definitely think we get caught up in this like hierarchical way of, of living. And Mm -hmm. I saw it a lot, especially going more online versus being out in the world for a couple of years, just living my life behind the screen. And I'm grateful that I've had this podcast to be able to connect deeply with people. But if you're just spending a lot more, a lot of time on like social media or just watching television, you really kind of see this, this like that people are pedestalized and trying to climb this ladder of like, you know, I'm better. I need to be better. I need to like (laughs) get more, you know, for myself and like kind of hoard it all and the very like scarcity mentality that is created. It's not real. That's the thing (laughs) that is so wild when you think about it. It really is. It's just a concept that we Mm. feed into that we allow ourselves to, to believe that Mm -hmm. there isn't enough love or acceptance to go around.
1: Truly. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of like love. I tell my kids you know, love is really one of those things. It doesn't. The more you give it, the more it grows. You mm-hmm. know, you have more. The more you, the kinder and the more love you give out, the more people than them love you, and it just grows like that. Yeah. It's not
0: so. India is now three or four. She's four. She's four. And wow. My
1: ever's
0: nine. I'm so curious. With her, has she had any? Have you been able to connect with her around this since you know there's a lot with moms and their babies and going through experiences together?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting that you're saying this because just yesterday we went to the beach on Labor Day and the tide was really high and the waves were kind of bigger and she was really upset. And, um, and I, (laughs) I, I mean, I know. Because I you know the studies that I've done and stuff, yes, the generational trauma, the gestational trauma, so, yes, I was just thinking yesterday that we should probably look into that. my son ever we had him in therapy right after, um, and I mean they're both doing great, and we talk about it a lot, and especially so they ask questions, we talk about stuff we you know, they now with the book, like they heard, um, I had a radio interview and it was on when we were on the way to school in the car, but they heard some stuff. And so then they're asking more questions. And I think that is one of the big keys is like not having anything pushed down or off limits, or we can talk about it.
0: Um, yeah, I think that's, that's really great for people to hear and understand because again, there's this fear of, if i bring it up is it going to like rehash something that didn't need to be you know maybe we just like keep it quiet and don't talk about it anymore and move on with our lives and that's the best and i i don't think that there's like one way or the other that is the ultimate expression of how to heal this but i do think that there's something about exposure so that you can be able to even as you did share your story today um, without feeling super triggered. And that took me a really long time to be able to share some of like my stories without feeling my nervous system start to get like revved up as because our brain doesn't really know the difference. If Come you're on. sharing it, you're reliving it. But, yeah. but if you've done the work to integrate, then you can share and you can be without having to have that happen to you.
1: It's true. Um, and I just want to say one thing about the talking to children about trauma, which I am not an expert in In that. But one thing that um, that Evers therapist said in talking to him, like let the child lead it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, leave it open so they can ask questions, but then just answer the question, you know, don't like elaborate on it. So yes. kind of let it be more child led. Yeah. So I just wanted to And that makes
0: sense that. to me because you had your lived experience with it from mm-hmm. an adult mindset, right? Of you had yeah. you you've had more things happen to you in your life, you have different perspectives in your life than a child would where everything is so new and perspective is really different and you're more sensory when you're young. So that makes yeah. a lot of sense not to impose. Well, this is how I felt. This is what happened, you know? Just not too
1: much on their little brains. Yeah. Um, yeah but we do, you know, I, it occurred to me, I'm like, Ooh, I was seven when I was molested, Evers nine. So we even like talked about, I mean, broadly talked about even that and like, you know, please tell you talk to mom or dad and then you know, let, if anyone ever, and makes you feel uncomfortable. And, you know, that's again a whole other conversation. But I think, encouraging the dialogue between parent and child, which, you know, I have great parents, but I grew up in the eighties. Um, and there just was not a lot of, not a lot of dialogue.
0: Yeah. It was more figuring it out for yourself.
1: (laughs) A little bit. And I think you spoke to this earlier, you know, like who, whose truths are we living that we need to look a certain way? And go to these schools and get this kind of job and, you know, the whole thing. Like, yeah. who are we doing that for?
0: <laughs> what has been your biggest takeaway for yourself after this experience that you had and how you now live your life?
1: Gosh. Um, I mean, there's been a lot. One of the, the big things that happened in the, in the aftermath for me is I wound up getting divorced um, which was another trauma, and yet, um, you know, it, it kind of that too changed my life. I think I realized that you know, we've been working and trying so hard on something, and that ultimately, it wasn't going to happen. Um, so I love Mark Nepo, the spiritual teacher. He talks about relationships. He says sometimes if you picture a couple in a body of water and a boulder gets dropped sometimes on the side of them and they get propelled together in the same direction. And sometimes the boulder gets dropped between them and they get kind of propelled in two different directions. So that's something that happened for me. And we're still wonderful friends and good co parents. And um You know, I now have a partner that, you know, I'm like, whoa, okay. So all the things I was trying so hard and working so hard, I wound up finding in this other person, um, not trying to change someone or, you know, so that was a really huge shift in my life. Um, That was a big one.
0: Yeah, that is a big one. Another way have you been able to, for yourself, have the experience of pointing to everything seems to happen in this divine way that things are happening for me, not to me. Has that been something that you felt?
1: Absolutely. And I, I talk a lot about that in the book. And I think that even that shift, what you just said, Juliet like when we were talking about language and stuff, if we can start to think more like that for ourselves. I think that flips us out of that victim mentality. Things are not happening to me. They're how is this happening for me? Or like what am I supposed to learn from this or, you know, um so yeah, even like different friendships, relationships, like a lot of friendships have shifted, changed form, which I think is true for a lot of us after going through a hard time. You really know who your friends are, um, and again, how I want to spend my time and with whom. And you sound like an empathic person. I bet a lot of your, your listeners are. It's that you know we can feel in our bodies when it feels good to be around somebody or in a situation, and when it doesn't. So I think that's one thing too is really paying attention more to those feelings and also then honoring them, mm-hmm. yeah, and not just going to something because. I, you know, because everyone, whatever, it's like, no, I'm, it doesn't feel right for me right now. I'm so sorry. I'm not going to make it today, but. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think listening, developing a relationship with that deeper inner knowing that we Mm -hmm. each have for ourselves. And sometimes that takes, you know, I talked about this on the last podcast episode I had um, with Albert Linda Silver, who is a a writer, speaker, runs meditation retreats, uses writing as this tool. But something we talked a lot about is getting quiet, giving Mm -hmm. yourself time and space to just be with yourself and have some quiet time so that you can develop that relationship from you to you with what your actual needs and desires are. If we're constantly busying ourselves and never having time to connect just with ourselves you know I once had a psychic say to me I need you to just stare at the ceiling fan for 30 minutes once a week she was like I'm really serious that's your homework like you need to schedule for yourself to do nothing don't even try to make it a thing where you're going out into nature and you're trying to make it this whole like you know scene for yourself like just lie down on your bedroom floor and just stare at your ceiling fan like okay.
1: <laughs> I someone else said to me once that prayer is when we talk to God and intuition is when God talks to us and we have to create the time and the space and the quiet to hear the intuition.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. ceiling
1: fan or Yeah, <laughs> was- yeah,
0: just you know, if you're someone like me who schedules your life like by the second, like (laughs) Mary knows, I'm like, yeah, I have a hard cut off in 10 minutes from now. uh, You you even I know for me, like I have to even schedule time in my calendar. That's like do nothing time. This is do not like fill this
1: time for yourself with anything. (laughs) So that is a great you know, recommendation to others. Like, gosh, we're all so busy,
0: busy, busy, busy. I feel like we're just, you know, life of like, I was talking about like, it's about maximizing and optimization. And I'm going to actually have a podcast episode on this, this, because I think that this is a conversation that needs to be had about how we have this like crazy relationship to maximization and optimization. And it's not healthy for many of us and it's to our detriment. So, um, if we can, you know, quiet, slow down and man, your relationship, I'm finding my relationship to my life has changed in such a profound way to be like so much better from not always trying to maximize and optimize things, you know?
1: Absolutely. And that, again, I think going back to like the like the gift of recognizing the fragility of life when we're so busy, 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 then we're missing like the bird chirping or the amazing flower that we would have liked steamrolled past or you know being able to connect with a friend or whatever it is you know it's like what we well, I think we're here to enjoy those things and to <laughs> yeah.
0: so where can people connect with you by the book who is this book for
1: this book is really for anyone who is struggling in the aftermath of trauma or maybe has even come through it um, because again, you know, it's this idea too, it's like healing is an ongoing lifelong process and self-development, which you know it's kind of like a <laughs> I don't know, that sounds like kind of an aggressive term, but you know, this idea that there's always more to know, there's always more to heal, there's always more to expand into, and I mean that in a good way. So I think this book is for anyone certainly who's experienced trauma. Um which is really all of us. Yeah, point. and
0: something like that came to mind too and you just said it is, we, I think it's also for people who want to feel more, like experience yeah. to feel. And one thing that, I, that was brought to my attention when it comes to addiction with people is we often think that people are trying to numb out with addiction, anesthetize themselves, whether that addiction is a substance or that addiction is to their work that addiction is to sex whatever it is right but mm-hmm. oftentimes it's actually people wanting to feel something it's wanting them to feel more not numb and i think mm-hmm. that's something that we need to think about too is how can we feel more sensation in our life right feel more ecstasy feel even feel our pain <laughs> and not Mm -hmm. run away from that. So that just made me think of that when you were saying this is for people who really want to, you know, expand themselves. I think part of that expansion is being able to feel more.
1: I love that. Yes. Um, Absolutely. And the book is, it's available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target. Amazing. Hopefully your local bookseller. And um, I have my sister and I have a website with Retreat offerings, and we have an essential oil-based perfume that we designed again to make you feel a certain way, not just smell good. So every essential oil we put in there has a, a purpose. um Firestonesisters.com, and then I have my own author page, which is MaryFirestone.co.com. If someone already has
0: that one, can't get a .com these days, right? Oh
1: my <laughs> it's, it's really hard. <laughs> that will be one million dollars. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> thank you
0: (laughs) well beautiful well thank you so much for sharing with the listeners and I will link to all of these things in the show notes so you can get this book and get in touch with Mary and I really appreciate
1: you taking the time today I really appreciate you and the work that you're doing thank you so much thank you